So hi, Ben. What was your first computer? Uh, so my first computer, I would say probably the first computer I learned on was an old uh, Tandy Trash 80. So okay. that, was the, my, that was my brother's uh, computer when I was growing up. Uh, he had a TRS-80, so that was, um, I think it was one of those Z80 old kind of DOS machines. Okay. Okay. I don't remember too much other than I was little. I was very little, and he used to tell us that uh, if we push the the big red power button, it would blow up. So we couldn't push that button, and so you try to scare him, me, myself, my sister, you know, a little five year old or something. Okay, like and that. what was the big uh, the red button? It was his power button, or what was it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, with the power button. Okay. So I think he just didn't want us to screw up his homework or something like that. So he used to tell us it would explode. Yeah, it was a effective strategy actually, and and yeah. uh, and he started. Well. You played games obviously at the beginning, right? Uh, yeah. I mean, I think I I learned to read um, on an old game called Reader Rabbit on my father's two eighty seven. Okay. So uh, and then of course you know games my brother had and and a bunch of the old DOS DOS World games which were pretty fun. And in one point of time you started programming or you you spent time with I don't know scripting or what was your know your road to something not gaming um i think i always wanted to i originally i wanted to do hardware so i was more interested in uh, you know how um you know i kind of viewed um like microprocessors you kind of like um like a sandbox every okay. 18 months at the time mm -hmm. it would double and so you had more more you could build a big a better sandcastle i mean in silicon is sand so it kind of made sense so i was very interested in the hardware aspect for a long time um I did learn to program, you know, Pascal, uh, you know, back in, I think, junior high and high school. Um, and then a little bit of, of C++ and other things on, on Turbo C and the, and the like. Um, but originally I was interested in hardware. And so I went to, I went, I went time in that direction, but I did dual because I wasn't sure which way I'd prefer in the end. So I did dual uh, computer science, computer sharing, um, and ended up. That... As a kid, it was TRS, TRS. So I think you played games. And then what? I'm, then you got another sure computer and played more games, or in one point of time you started, you know, to investigate what is actually programming, or what was the transition from gaming to hardware, or from gaming to programming? Um, it would probably it would more uh, I would more use it towards the hardware. So you know, I'd build the computers and 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 those type of things, and then you know, of course, play games like Star Control or or other random ones um, a lot. And um, but I think I then I th I, mean, I guess. I kind of did both in terms of building assembly computers and 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 interested in kind of learning about more uh, the hardware side more um, uh, prior to college and then um, and then also you know we um, my school started to have um, you know actual programming classes so okay. pretty kind of early and so you know I took those those classes to do like you know we did Pascal back in those days um, and so I did that but then when I went to school I did I did both computer science and and electron sharing and ended up. Uh, just you know, waited till I was graduating to sit, figure out which which one I'd be applying for okay. on a job wise. And for uh, and for whom you build the computers for yourself, or you sold them, or what you did with the computers? Uh, no, I didn't really do do much on the selling side. I I would just build it for myself or with friends. And you know, you'd read the old uh, computer magazines to go through and try to see what the latest hardware was, and read Maximum and, and others to uh, to see, you know to understand about the latest um, you know CPUs or how yeah, yeah. that stuff was working. Um, you know, and then, you know, and then we do things like, you know, uh, a friend and I would uh, try to figure out how to, back in those days, you might remember, um, everything got hot very quickly. Yeah. Uh, hard drives, you bought a SCSI, and, you know, they were just burned up um, and you have to constantly fight with cooling. So uh, friends and I would, you know, experiment trying to build water cooling systems from scratch or to, um, we tried to figure out how to use um, a thermal pad in order to kind of blow in 
uh, cold air and blow out hot air. Um, oh. If you remember the thermal pads, yeah, the remember the thermal pads. Basically, it, um, if you put electricity to them, once it gets really hot, once it gets really cold, okay. and so okay. we were trying to figure out how to use that in order to um, to kind of cool down our machines because you know their desktops are sound like a jet engine. Once you put in a SCSI uh, driver to, you had you know you had to put in a um, those old Pentium uh, Pro um, heat sinks right on your hard drive just to cool it down. Yeah. And the hard drive would get so hot it would it would die. So, I, I did also my experiments exactly like you. What I remember, I built once a machine for me. It was a workstation with water cooling. And uh, mm -hmm. it was, I think, Thermaltake. I don't know whether you know the company, Thermaltake. I remember hearing about yeah. them. Yeah, and they had a rocket from, uh, oh, cool. it was aluminum or steel, or a rocket with uh, the water just flew to the rocket up and, and then, then like a waterfall was... Uh, was uh, went down and there was a small pump in the computer it was around 2003 this was the hardware i'm talking about and with the rocket it came a yellow uh, fluid which glue hmm. in the dark or something like this oh and, yeah i saw it. yeah yeah and the problem was so i assembled my computer on the desk and sun uh it, it, the the, <laughs> the fluid reacted with the sun which i didn't knew and the mm -hmm. pressure built up and the entire <laughs> thing blew up and the yellow, you know, the layer yellow fluid, just you know, exploded on on my uh, on my ceiling. And until now, you know, there is there there is a patch. And uh, until <laughs> now, you know, I said it's a really funny situation because uh, a funny situation. I assembled, you know, all the all the all the pieces. And at one point of time, the pressure built up. I couldn't do nothing against that. And then I read somewhere that actually the fluid reacts with the sunlight. Yeah, I didn't try to do uh, colored fluid. I thought those. Those and neon lights and things like that, people were putting on pretty neat. Um, I think at one point, I just when I was in college, uh, I I ended up buying one of those machines. I don't know who that brand, but I remember buying one of the popular um, water cooling brands because I just didn't want to have to build it again. Um, and it was you know it was pretty nice. I mean, it was very it kept everything very quiet. You yeah, very quiet. Specialized it was very things, quiet. Yeah. Like that. And I mean, before that, I mean, it was just it just like I said, it sounded like a jet engine once you had a powerful computer because it was just so loud trying to keep keep everything uh, somewhat cool. Yeah, but recently so I bought cool. another Thermaltake um, chassis, and uh, this is extremely quiet. It was uh, it was mm -hmm. actually not not my intention because actually a server, but it was extremely quiet. Also, it has you know uh, several uh, several fans. But uh, they are huge fans, and um, they're from from Austin co company. I don't know whether you are aware of it. it's called Noctua, so it's very very silent. Mm. Um, yeah, interesting. So, um, so you studied computer science? Uh, yeah, I mean, that, yeah, I did computer science, computer engineering uh, for for school. Just basically, that was a dual track. The computer engineering is basically um, electrical, but they you would just swap out a couple classes for more digital logic. Okay. And so I just did the dual uh, because I wasn't sure which way I liked. I liked the hardware, but I wasn't sure if, um, if, you know, from, you know, sometimes you just have uh, more, you know, Inuit in, in, uh, skill. And so, you know, the, the CS sites have just always clicked and the hardware was always a little bit hard mm -hmm. uh, to try to like work through for me. Okay. And, and when you learned programming? Oh, I learned, um, like I said, I learned programming um, at least more formally, I guess, would have been in uh, high school and probably bits and pieces I learned earlier, but nothing nothing major. I wasn't doing a lot. I mean, I mostly, you know, if I was doing something, it was like trying to hack Doom in the hex editor to increase my life. You know, back when you get to do yeah. that on your saving files, okay. you know, um, those type of things. But nothing, you know, other friends of mine would, you know, would program their TI calculators and basic and do that type of stuff. And I just never, um, I never got too deep 
into mm -hmm. it before doing um, for you know more uh, college and then you know I did the bits and pieces from classes. But so um, you were more or less forced for, forced to let pro to learn programming, right? <laughs> I was interested in it, but I wasn't interested in it from a perspective of building games. Okay. Uh, I was more interested in it from the pure engineering side of things. So um, you know, so I really love like you know freshman year when you take the data uh, data structure. Class okay. and it's like you know when you start you know learning about you know trees and hash tables and and then later when you take your algorithm class I thought that stuff was very fun and interesting so okay um, the games would always just like it's a fun excuse to be on the computer but I was more interested in the engineering side of things of how it works and how you build it and how you design something um, and, and that's where you know starting out I, I I thought that from a hardware perspective I liked that side and then learning from uh, from college you know the, the actual software engineering side which. Um, at the time, I didn't know very much about. And so that's okay. why the software programming, it didn't really draw me too heavily okay. at the time. And, and where you studied? Which university was it? Do you know it? Uh, yeah, I went to a school in, uh, called Illinois Tech in Chicago. Okay. Um, I, grew up, I grew up in, in the Bay Area. Okay. And I just, and at the time, you know, I just kind of get away from California. And so okay. I went to Chicago and that was a good school, good, good uh, scholarship. And then, um, and then I came right back to California because I, I learned what a winter was like in the snow and wind oh. and you know everything about Chicago, which I naively did not know much about at the time. And 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 you like the proper winter and snow, or you prefer you know the Californian climate? Uh, it, it's 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 nice to experience, but it's uh, uh, California is a lot better. I would yeah. definitely uh, <laughs> not, not having, definitely definitely prefer California overall. So, um, so you know, go a couple years out and you learn to appreciate home. Yeah. So um. What you learned? Um, which programming languages you learned during your study? So university was it uh, C, C plus plus, Java? Yeah, we did. Um, we did mostly C plus plus and Java at mm -hmm. the time. Um, and I mean, since I was doing a lot of hardware, I mean, lots and lots of assembly and um, HDLs, so like three or four different um, hardware description languages. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, but like yeah, there wasn't a big um, push on the language side. It was just you know use whatever language you want. And that okay. was either you know, we started with C plus plus, and then people would use Java, but it wasn't. Uh, they didn't really push any any perspective on that. What you did in your leisure with this stuff? Could you do something? Let's say I don't know, create your own hardware or whatever, or was it just you would you you couldn't do something like this? Because um, so I studied computer science on on, on site. I, mm -hmm. on, on my leisure, I always you know created something f f just for me. Hack some stuff around. I played you know with programming. I, I did a lot of C C plus uh, plus Java. Is something possible in in on the hardware side? So you you did something hackery? You could. Um, you could a little bit, but it was kind of hard because you're spending your time on breadboards and you're yeah. you're programming uh, the various um, chips, you know, FPGAs and, and the like. So um, you could um, honestly at the time, I kind of I kind of figured um, that you only have like one time for going to college, university. Okay. It's like or mostly you only have like most people only have one shot to really spend a couple years. So I just decided I would try to cram as much as I could. So um, so I didn't I didn't do a lot of um, hobby projects on the side. You know I did because um, I did uh, I did two degrees and a master's. I just crammed it all in while I had wow. scholarship. Okay. And so basically I know and do that you know take, took my summers and everything else. So um, so I was you know so I just didn't do as much hacking, which um, which is unfortunate. But um, but you know would have been fun to do. But I just well, didn't do it much. Could I? Just so you are really focused cram. focused student, right? So incredible. Yeah, I mean, that was what I tried to do. I figured, like I said, I mean, it would have been fun to build and do all that stuff, and I think it would have been pretty helpful. Um, but I figured, you know, um, naively or, or not, uh, that I had, you know, in the next 
10, 20, you know, whatever years of my profession to catch up in that side, um, but only really one shot to uh, go to school uh, full time. Okay. And so I just thought I should try to maximize that. And, and your grades were good? Uh, yeah, they were they were pretty good. I mean, I was a probably like a B plus student. I mean, oh, it's, I mean, perfect. taking too many classes was, um, you know, made it hard to hard to get um, get A's. And, yeah. But you know, well, hopefully, but you tried obviously not to get any C's or or anything anything too low. So, um, so I did I did I did good good I did good given there were hard classes and that I was I was cramming more than I probably should have uh, um, in a, any sane world to do in a week. What happened after the university? Uh, after university, um, we had a big recession, so that kind of sucked. Oh, two thousand eight, I guess, right? Uh, no, it would have been would have been two thousand four, two thousand something like that. It's a couple of years earlier than that. We had another, we had a tech recession after the dot com bust, and it took a long time for okay. uh, that to kind of recover. But this was more in Germany. Was like you know, it started two thousand, two thousand one. Yeah, we had we had something we had yeah we had something like that with the dot com bust, and then it took a couple of years because uh, I mean you would have you know you'd, you'd only want to hire naturally um, experienced engineers to okay. be coming out of school as a new grad. Yeah. You you know even if the even if the industry is trying to recover, it's still harder. So that that was where when I uh, I came out of school, and then um, but um, but yeah, I mean then we you know then just more more towards programming because that you know that just fit me better, and also it was just what the industry. Uh, you know, was needing. So, um, you started a company, or you started to work as a freelancer consultant. With what, what you did after your university? Oh, I, I went to a I went to a company uh, that did um, uh, travel. So basically, they um, they did like a travel platform, kind of like um, uh, but for corporate travel. So okay. um, the company changed names a couple times. They okay. they were, um, but basically, so if you're doing. Um, They'd have to talk down to the old mainframes, the GDS systems. Okay. And so you do air, hotel, car, and you'd be booking them, but they'd be doing it for uh, corporate travel. So you'd have okay. a bunch of um, expense management rules to say, you know, yes, you are, um, as an engineer, you're only allowed to book, um, you know, uh, you know, normal eco um, economy. But if you're in sales, you get business class, and these are preferred airlines, and, you know, do all that's expense management. And so, um, and so, you know, you know, basically working on their platform for a couple of years. And um, then went off. Which programming language you, you choose? C, C++ or? Uh, they, they did everything in Java. So that's oh, Java. I got. So that's this was your, your introduction to Java? Uh, I'd done some Java in school, but that was mm -hmm. my first like real world introduction in Java. So we were started off on Java 4 is when, okay. I, when I started the company. I mean, it'd been around for a year, yeah. for a couple of years. And then, um, and, then, uh, and then we went to Java 5 and, um, and maybe 6. And then I jumped over to Google for a couple of years and, and on and on. Oh. I just always kept with Java. Interesting. So, um, and, and you liked the Java experience? I, 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 yeah, I think Java is great. I know that you always have haters online, but um, but whenever you touch anything else, it just it always feels like you're like you lost something. You know, the JVM in terms of um, inspecting and, and profiling, um, in terms of like the, the tooling for language, like you know IDs or anything else, it's just very. Um, very flexible, great documentation. You actually get to go look at the source code. So I'm sure you remember back in the day that if you wanted to, you know, try to figure out how a library worked, most of the time you had to go look at some um, very arcane documentation. You didn't get the source code. So being able to just jump into the code and, and kind of skip over docs was uh, always great. Yeah. So um, I always thought the Java was great. I know it, I know people have their own opinions, but um, Java and the ecosystem around it has always been uh, really, uh, really nice. Yeah. Um... I'm even even worse, you know, yes, I do Java since JDK 1.0, and I still mm. really enjoy it. 
So it is never yeah. gets boring. So I, I, for me, it is just you know great greatest time ever, and this doesn't look like uh, I just losing the interest. This is yeah, it's a great language. And uh, do you, why you switch the companies from the travel to Google? I, I mean, it is almost obvious, right? Google, but was it your plan to go to Google, or was it like your lucky accident? You know. Um, well, the company was in a. Um, the company had, had struggled with that recession in two thousand eight, like you're okay. talking about. Oh, two thousand eight, um, yeah, great. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so by that time, so I'd been there for like four or so years, and um, they were they were struggling, and I'd been there for a while, and um, and then you know, so it just was time uh, okay. for myself. And bunch of bunch of people were also leaving, um, and so it just interest, you know, it just wasn't as healthy of an environment. And mm -hmm. then um, and then we're just interviewing, and I had a I had a former I had a colleague. A former colleague at that company who had gone off to Google uh, a year or two before, and um, and so then I just kind of um, you know followed his his path and joined his team. Um, you know how was the was, you know, well, how was the interview at Google? That was like a six hour interview, I think. Yeah, um, yeah. Basically, uh, you basically um, uh, it was like like ten o'clock till like five five or something something crazy because you had the you had a lunch uh, in between. You know, so I I, I met with that guy uh, for lunch. And it was just nonstop of one plus hour, um, hour interviews. But um, it was fun. I think the I would do pretty well throughout it, except for the last interview when I was just tired. And I got an answer, but the the um, interviewer was trying to push me to give the more optimal answer. Like you know, I got the right answer, but I mean, it was like you could get a little bit further to really crack it and do something really neat. And like he knew I could get it. Like I would be, I was almost there. And I was just like, I was just wasted. I was just tired. I was like, I. I I'm tired. Like, let's you know, I, I'm interested, but I just can't think anymore. And um, and and I, mean, I still, it still was fine. It was just that was the only disappointment. For what me was, was it roughly? You remember what it was? Which task was it? It was something to do with the binary search tree. And okay. I don't remember the question off the top of my head. That's been too long. But um, it was some trick around binary search trees, and I had the I had the core part of it. I had the answer. I had the core part of it, but there was some special trick that would just make it really elegant, and I just couldn't I, I just couldn't make that leap okay. um at the time and and i think i think he, i think he was generous because he uh he didn't really seem to hold it over me he just pushed me for like 15 minutes on it and then realized finally that i was being honest when i said i, I was i was just just done okay and it takes a lot out of you with those uh with the google style interviews for a whole day that took a lot takes a lot out of you and um you started google what you did at google with java uh so i i basically decided to join to follow my uh, my friend my former colleague. So um, I just thought, you know, and having not worked at a big company, I only worked at startup at a startup before that. I didn't, I didn't, you know, want to, um, I didn't really want to do, you know, I figured I played states, learn, you know, learn from people I knew and, um, and then gradually uh, move around. Um, but they were working on effectively their version of Salesforce. Okay. Um, so kind of how they want, they, um, everything internal for their own CRM and sales would all go through um, a Google uh, CRM. And so, um, and so they, that was a team that was building their, um, their sales force, which, you know, they always talked about eventually competing and he never did. Um, but it was really an in-house, uh, sales, uh, stuff. And so, um, what I worked on was their one approach towards integration 
was um, if you remember iGoogle a long, long time ago, mm-hmm. and that was a way of punching out the little uh, gadgets that could punch out to other systems. Mm-hmm. And if you got a big company like Google, they got a lot of these disparate systems from like DoubleClick and others, and some of those are on Salesforce, some of those on on Dynamics and on other you know, cu- other custom-built uh, systems. So their approach was, well, we, you know, sometimes, we, you know, if we can, we'll want to feed in all the data and get it all, but other times we just need to give the... Um, the back office people an ability to punch out and just see information in other systems and um, and then even have some control within this one system to make edits that would then get reflected back. Okay. And so they had taken iGoogle, um, which was C++, and they had um, forked it to, um, to make their own um, gadget container that would have a lot more features. And iGoogle was, um, was, was dead. Um, and they were basically the ones keeping iGoogle alive because, you know, entire sales system at, at mm-hmm. Google was dependent upon it. And so when I joined, they needed a project to rewrite it um, from scratch, okay. uh, effectively with more features for role-based and other type of characteristics, more enterprise. So that was called patchwork. And so I did the um, I did design and, um, and then implementation with another um, engineer who'd been there for a while uh, to build out basically our own version of iGoogle, but with a lot more enterprise features for um, you know, to and then that became that was kind of the way for dashboards and for other um, customizations for their um, CRM that would then integrate with all the other systems. So that way, um, you know, that way you could still integrate without having to bring all the data. Because obviously, bringing in all the data, those deep level backend integrations, is a lot more work. Whereas if you can end up saying, if this is all you need, let's do a front end level with a gadget, um, and then have that punch out. And then if there's more, we can you know promote that towards a real full real integration. And um, and that yeah, that was all Java. It was using um, it was actually in Gwit. So that was ah. Java compiled with JavaScript. Uh, and so that was my. I was always. A, I'm always a backend engineer, and so that was my uh, first kind of real foray, other than doing a bits and pieces of struts on um, on the front end. And but that was still Java, and then you know got to design it using a lot of the backend kind of engineering patterns. Um, you know, so, um, since it still felt like a real uh, backend kind of system. Mm-hmm. And it was Java without any frameworks, or just plain vanilla Java, right? Uh, well, Gwit is kind of a framework by itself, but it um, you know you would use um, you know, on the back end, you, you know, obviously Google used Juice for mm-hmm. its DI. Yeah. And on Gwit, you would have Gin, so Gin and Juice. Uh, so Gin is the Gwit injector. So that would be, you know, basically just Gwit and Gin were your frameworks, and they didn't, and it didn't really have much structure. To um, it kind of feels like nat, like like plain Java, JavaScript mm-hmm. um, in that sense. Like those are the basics. Um, and so you'd have to build more of a structure because there wasn't a real good way of how you build up your uh, component hierarchy and the rest. And so, um, you know, but yeah, it would just be, um, it was mostly just uh, Gwit and Jin on the front end and um, in Juice um, on the back end and no real other uh, major frameworks, you know, bits and pieces of what uh, Google had their own version of Jetty kind of systems and other stuff like that. But again, it was just like a bare bones um, kind of Java system. I'm not aware of Jin. What is Jin? So Jin, uh, Jin. So if you're aware of Juice, yeah. Uh, so Juice, of course, is server side. Yeah. And Gwid was uh, Java compiled to JavaScript. Yeah, of course. That's what so I know. Mm-hmm. So Jin was uh, was a, a dependency injector that that was for client side. Okay. So and that's and that's what I was saying. Jin and Juice, the old uh, rap song. If you're aware of that, that's where I think the slime came from. So Juice on the server side, and then from Juice, they needed dependency injection on for client side. So that became Jin. Um, as but your, Jin as is not injector. open source. This was internal Google project, I guess, right? 
Uh, I don't know. I didn't. I, I didn't follow Gwyd after I left. Um, I knew Gwyd was pretty much dying, um, and it seems like it's um, it never really took much um, speed. So I assume it's probably an only internal Google project. Yeah. I don't. But I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe they open sourced it. I honestly never followed. And, and what the SCM? Source code management tools you use at Google. So was it like a monorepo or was it a subversion or what? What was the story with that? So uh, Google, Google, uh, Google uses a monorepo. Mm -hmm. um, and they use at the time they used Perforce, mm -hmm. so very massive Perforce system. Those were at the those were at the time the largest, uh, most powerful computers. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, uh, when I was leaving, they were working on a replacement. I think the, it was called Piper, and that and that's what they're using now. And that basically is a Perforce rewritten by Google to be Google Scale. So it'd be okay. big on based on Bigtable and all the other core technology at the time. Um, but it would basically speak the um, the perforce uh, dialect, and then, um, and then, uh, and then you would, and then I think they had a, um, a Git uh, wrapper uh, for people who want who were into Git, um, and Git was still pretty new at the time. Okay. But you could use the kind of Git commands that would get translated um, across. And which build system have you used? And or Maven or something? Well, at Google, of course, they use Blaze. Now that's called Bazel. Bazel, um, okay. But, mm -hmm. but that that's what that's what they use. It's called Blaze, and I like the I like the original name better. Um, and that was, I think, honestly, I think that's the best build system I've ever used. Why? Um, it's just very powerful and elegant. Um, it just, you, 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 you construct everything as rules. So you don't have one big build file, which has, which is gross and it's just some atrocity uh, as you get more and more code. And I, I really like the structure that you could do in Ant and, and Blaze, which is you make more of a source tree. I don't, per, I don't particularly like how the Maven module style because now you have lots of these little modules, which sometimes yeah. don't really mean very much. Sometimes we'll do functional, so it'll be, um, you know, model view controller modules. Sometimes we'll do it by components. It's there's, they're all flat at the top because most people don't build out the hierarchy. It, it and then you have the nesting again. It doesn't, um, it doesn't feel like it scales as well. And when you have lots and lots of modules, um, and you know, Gradle took the same model there, um, and Blaze or uh, Bazel um, took it as just one big source tree. And mm -hmm. every every package have its own little build file. And that build file is only like two or three lines. It just says, you know, these are my dependencies. Mm -hmm. And um, and you could add more, you know, glob and other things. You could add more complexity. But most of the time, it was pretty straightforward. And then you could just stitch it together by um, it would build up its own dependency graph and compile and, and cache that stuff. So you didn't run into these issues of this module. Well, what la what layer of my system should it be in? Because I want some utilities and I want references somewhere else. But now I ha you know now I feel like I'm having to go towards you know old C plus plus style um, layering and you know and how all these things are interconnected rather than um, Java natural style of my package. My okay. package is this. I can scope my package and I can say everything under this this subtree is private because I, this is the whole application. So I don't want some other application to be peeking at my internals. Mm -hmm. So I, it just felt more powerful, more, uh, you know, more kind of like, I'm sure now with um, Jigsaw, more like that module style as well, mm -hmm. but um, definitely just felt more more elegant, more natural um, to work in, but, you know, it took a little bit more effort to maintain um, because you have to add more. And you could release the software at any time. So this was like, you know, so you could just push the buttons released or how it is worked? Um, at their, well, their world, um, basically you always committed. So everything was, once it was committed, it was buildable and would get released for any, anyone who might be doing a release. So if you, uh, if you say contributed to Guava, then, um, then within a commit or two, it might go out with, you know, on the ads, uh, team or someone else, because everything just got merged in and you just put more time into, into your effort into testing. Um, 
And then, but I think you know, everyone, every team would have its own release cycle. So I think my team probably had a release cycle maybe once every week or two. Okay. Um, I don't remember too much about that, but um, basically once it went in into the mono repo, um, it was therefore, you know, it could get picked up by anyone if it was a shared library. So you could get, you start hearing back um, uh, feedback, you know, error, bug reports and everything else from, from a team, you know, that's in, you know, um, other side of the world that just did releasing and they picked up your bug and, and now you got to go kind of fix it. Cool. What what happened after Google? So you left Google? Oh uh, yeah, I went off to a company that was only uh, that was like a couple blocks away from from Google that um, was doing the financial analytics, and so I, I was working on I was kind of leading their platform team um, to you know basically they would they would do a lot of portfolio management, a lot of like you know bring um, uh, data manipulation stuff like that to um, um, and so yeah, so I just jumped over there, um, and then from there I went off uh, my current role which is uh, more in the logistics space. Okay. So now you're working still with Java in logistics space, right? Yeah. Yeah. So now, uh, yeah. So now we're basically doing uh, more trucking logistics. So um, uh, for example, right now uh, we're, we've been pushing a lot with COVID on contactless pickup and delivery. So, you know, mobile and backend and um, kind of custom workflows for, um, uh, to allow, um, you know, truckloads. So this would be, for example, we are rolling out this week uh, to all of FedEx's like 600 facilities in the U.S. and you know so they have a, um, at their you know at their facilities you know they'll they'll do their sort and packaging and everything else and then the, and the, and the, the trucks will have to go between facilities of course right because you have to move it across country so um, those are all full truckloads of of lot of parcel um, and so they'll be using um, our stuff for um, for the driver check-in for for giving them a door number to um, to unload at. Um, all that kind of stuff to keep everyone, um, uh, you know, spaced out, and then, um, and then of course also for, um, you know, there's, there's other workloads of course that uh, that FedEx has, but in other companies as well. So it's um, it's not we don't do it much. Um, or we do some on the last mile. It depends on the company. So parts where like you know they get the poop delivery and sign, and they'll do a lot of that stuff on our mobile app, and then the back office will use um, our Java web app. Uh, to deal with like you know, invoicing and to deal with um, you know you know other other aspects of their business there, um, but yeah, it's pretty much um, it's 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 still very much of a Java shop. Yeah, interesting. So now obviously it's a more than uh, Java six or or five, whatever you did back then. So you're a recent Java eleven, I guess, right? Yeah, um, we're on Java fifteen. Well, uh, I mean, uh-huh. we're not paying. We're, we're all paying for for an LTS. So I kind of. Um, you know, if we're not paying, then the recommendation is to stay on the latest. Yeah. So um, we're on we're either on fourteen or fifteen. Um, and and if we haven't gone to the latest one, it's just because I haven't uh, bothered to go through that extra step. Yeah. Um, but um, but yeah, I try to keep us on. Um, I think you know the job at eight to nine and ten was a little bit painful. Yeah. Yeah. Because you had to kind of deal with some that of those stuff, right? Yeah. But you know, after that, it's pretty smooth, and so it just seems better to to upgrade um, after you get a little bit of time for, you know, Eclipse and others to kind of get their upgrade mm-hmm. um, upgrades um, out live. Before your company right now, uh, can you reveal the name of the other company? So a few, a few blocks away from Google, what was it? Uh, that company is called Adapart. Okay. Um, and so they're still around. They, they're they doing a lot of stuff with like JP Morgan and others. Oh, okay. Um, so and and for, why you um, left Google and, 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 and walked a few, uh, I mean, Google is Google is a nice name, right? So uh, you were born yeah, with... Google- Basil? Um, you, there's a lot of um, big companies uh, have a lot of the good things and bad things, and okay. there'll be subcultures. So in that subculture, at that area, it wasn't the healthiest. 
Okay. And uh, and uh, and and so I did not enjoy my experience there. Okay. Um, I enjoyed my experience with with you know when I work um with other teams like on twenty percent side. So when I work with the Guava guys on the caching and stuff mm -hmm. like that, that was always really fun. But my direct team, you know, I did a lot of good work there. I got a nice promotion and stuff, but it just wasn't um it wasn't very healthy okay. and um and, and it just wasn't um it wasn't a great fit. And so I found myself um you know, I started at startups, and so I went back to startups because um, it's just uh, a better fit. Yeah, funny, uh, for because me. for me, Google is still sounds like startup. You know, for me, if I think about Google, I think about startups, but it's a huge company, actually, right now. It's an yeah. en enterprise company, but I still have in mind, you know, Google's small, nimble startup, but it's actually no more true. <laughs> yeah, I think I think the problem is that you, is the further away you get from the customer, um, the more it's hard to tell whether something is a... Um, you know whether what's being built is um, the impact of that, and um, and so you start getting more and more oriented uh, people. You know about performance. Review. So every three months you have to do a performance review, oh, okay. um, and every six months it was a bit, it was a larger, okay. uh, more feedback one. And so everything was about the performance review. So even if you did well, you know you still had people were stack ranked. So you know you you know so on your team, your competitors. That one teammate tell me that, and it was and but at a startup, you weren't thinking about your teammates as competitors. You're yeah. thinking of it as your competitors, your competitors. So um, you're and so you're focused on coming together to go solve a problem, not being afraid of being stabbed in the back because a teammate is, you know, is afraid and wants his performance review to be be better than yours. Yeah. And um, that, unfortunately, that subculture um, had that um, characteristic, and so um, I did not I didn't enjoy that. And um, and they played some games to um, to keep me from switching. So they had um, you know at big companies or things like I googled name from like code uh, red, yellow, and purple. They say like code red is like Gmail is down, code yellow is like Gmail will be down like in a couple of months if we don't scramble and purple and stuff. And so they, so when I was trying to get out, um, they switched, they, they, they pulled me back with a code yellow on their team. And it was, it just, it was just a lot of stuff. I don't want to get, I'm getting into too much already, but it just wasn't a great fit. It, but like I said, that's a subculture, different yeah. teams. You know, I'm sure um, a lot of people really enjoy their experience at Google and I just, was unfortunate to have found a good good fit. And, no, I but, think you know, it's, it's not, not the Google. It's every you no know, large company. It is uh, there are some politics in place, and I, I I was always a freelancer. I've just observed it from outside, and I would say all big companies have some problems with you no know, politics, or they forgot why they are building the stuff or whatever. There's lots of stuff going yeah. on where no one understands, and for us uh, developers, it's not logical what's going on, right? There are uh, lots yeah. of funny stories. So um, now I was just curious whether you found, you know, okay, and, and the other company you worked with was the, you know, um, was it Java, what you did still? Yeah, the first one I worked at, at the time, they were called Reardon Commerce, so uh, named after that old Ayn Rand book. Mm -hmm. um, I don't remember the name of it. Um, and they were doing travel expense and management. I think they renamed themselves to Deem, but okay. um, I haven't really followed them too much. Okay. Uh, then it was at Google. Then it was at the company um, Adapar doing finance. And then it's still with Java, right? Other part you did also Java. Yeah, everyone, my entire career has been Java. Okay, nice. And then the current one, the current one is Vector, um, where we're doing the logistics uh, mm -hmm. side of things. Okay. And and which software are you using now at Vector, you said, right? Vector? Yeah. So, um, I, I mean... It's a, it's still a startup, so um, nice. You know, when I was building building their stack, um, you know, I didn't, you know, you kind of want to use somewhat boring, tried and true, don't go too crazy. So it's um, so it's Jetty with um, JaxRS um, with um, Juke, uh, Juice, um, and crazy, um, and then you know, uh, nice. <laughs> I mean, really lightweight. Yeah, so I, I mean, this is yeah. Uh, yeah. 
yeah, very simple, but unusual. This is what I wanted to say. So, you know, Jaxores, Juice, perfect. Uh, Jetty, yeah. okay. And uh, and Juke is this query leverage, J-O-K, right? Uh, Q, but yeah, uh, J-O-Q. J-O-Q, uh, yeah, yeah, Juke. So, yeah, yeah. So, so and then, then, you know, and then that talks to Postgres, and we have Elasticsearch, and we have some of our own, um, uh, kind of our own framework. And this is actually, and you are a startup in, 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 in Bay Area. Yeah, yep, in the Bay Area. And so, um, yeah, well, uh, I, I, I would uh, actually, I would judge, you know, uh, and I would say your stack is boring in a good way because it, it you know, yeah. comprises uh, proven technologies, no funky stuff, exactly. and it just works. And uh, yeah, and JaxRS, what are you using, Jersey? Uh, no, I got burned with Jersey 2, or I think it was when Jersey 2, when, when they tried to do their own DI and it wasn't compatible with anything. Yeah, context. Um, it's, it's called. And it wasn't, um, and to get it to work with juice at the time was like really painful because they do these weird statics. Um, and I think it wasn't even painful with spring, um, which I haven't used since spring one, I think. So, uh, my spring knowledge is pretty out of date. Mm -hmm. Um, but, um, but so getting burned and also the, um, the, the Jersey team at the time, I don't think they were very well funded because it was, you know, sun was dying and Oracle's taking it over. So they weren't very responsive to uh, to the community. So I switched over to um, uh, Rest Easy. Okay. Um, and Rest Easy is great. I mean, Rest Easy, it, you know, it's very pluggable. The team's been wonderful. Um, you know, the only issue I ever had with it, honestly, was I found a, um, a hash DOS um, exploit um, once and, they, you know, they, they were very quick to uh, fix it. Uh, that was, but everything else has been wonderful. So, you know, it's just, and it's just Jack's RS in the end of the day. Yeah. Um, so it's very, very smooth and very easy. Interesting, because I usually prefer Jersey over REST Easy. And the, and the reason being is because with Jersey, it is easier to create system tests because if you would start REST Easy in a unit test, there were some problems with connection closing. You know, mm. uh, uh, they they just uh, they in one point of time they were stuck. You will have to create to do you know to configure your own HTTP connection pool and uh, to do it properly. And Jersey worked out of the box, so I always preferred uh, Jersey. And I always used more than you, so I use Whitefly or whatever. And mm. then you know the dependency injection Payara Whitefly uh, was already solved for me. But a very similar stack. So if you will look properly on my code, we almost the same code because juice results in add inject with Jersey, so there will yep. be no difference, I think, in the in the, in the source exactly. code. Exactly. You know the the the, the juice got, juice and Spring guys came up with that JSR for inject. And yeah, exactly. Then, you know, Which is crazy because what I what I what I noticed recently that Spring doesn't use the add inject from Ron Johnson anymore. So like they they yeah, they, 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 they still use Autowire. Which is crazy. Yeah, they, they, they forgot their own standard, which 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 really struck. Because I don't know whether you follow the the history. Is uh, one point of time this Java six was almost done, and then Rod Johnson came out with the juice dependency injection, and they you know afterwards. Well, no, Rod Johnson. Rod uh, Johnson and Crazy Bobbly both. Yeah, Bobbly, 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 Bobbly did juice with a bunch of other people um, at Google, and then uh, but then he and Rod Johnson. Did the JSR exactly? Did the exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then in six week, you know, they pushed the the spec and which uh, made you know the Java six late because they just took mm -hmm. the CDI uh, dependency. Uh, the sorry, the not CDI, the juice dependency injection. This at inject, and to uh, and they they refactor actually Java six. And now the crazy stories now because it came out of of of, of Spring more or less. Ro Johnson. But Spring yeah. doesn't use it anymore, and we still use it, right? You use it, and I use yeah. it, and Spring doesn't use it, yeah. which is crazy. I, and, and I don't know why Spring uses uh, still prefers AutoWire. It's just probably historical. Um, but I'm also Spring was always a little bit weird. Like Juice um, had the nice observation 
where a long time ago, Spring yeah, pushed everything to property-based injection, yeah. which made sense given the XML world. Um, and then, uh, um, but of course, that meant that your objects weren't always fully materialized. They were, you know, they weren't in, they were in inconsistent state when you when you construct them. So Juice, being very type-oriented, uh, did constructor injection, and then Spring eventually followed suit. And nowadays, I think, you know, but I still see whenever I see people write sample code online, and I kind of see what examples people make, they still just use uh, property, but they don't. They just use private properties. They don't even make it as public setters or anything else. They just auto wire private fields, and you're. Um, you kind of therefore break some of the initial ideas that Rod Johnson and, and others had, which is that you um, you're wiring up your up your dependencies, and the injector is kind of just behind the scenes. You don't need the injector to write tests. You don't need that type of stuff. But um, and I might be totally wrong because I, I like I said I haven't used Spring since one point um, X days. Um, but it looks like whenever I look at people's sample code on GitHub, it looks like they're very much tied to Spring, yeah. um, more so than what Rod Johnson at the time would have been promoting back back in his um, back in his early days. I actually, I never had the opportunity to to do a lot of Spring or anything with Spring because uh, I'm uh, spend lots of my time with Jakarta and MicroProfile. Actually, all mm. my time, so um, never had the opportunity. But what made me uh, how I found you is because of caffeine. You know, you've wrote a nice cache. Uh, well, I was actually starting that stuff back. I think in when I first started playing with that stuff was back in 2008. Mm -hmm. So I was doing performance work at my at my first job, and um, and at the time, uh, caches were just uh, you know synchronized LR, um, link patch map in LRU mode, mm -hmm. and so running and I was, and we were running into performance issues. Um, you know, so I was like you know I was it was introducing memcached which was still uh, pretty hot in those days um, as a as a remote cache with a um, a local and memory cache. Um, one one question about uh, memcached because you are the cache expert. So for me, from Java perspectives, if it never made sense in projects and it caused a lot of trouble. So as memcached came out, lots of Java projects in my enterprise project wanted to use memcached. But what what you had to do, of course, you get you know to serialize the Java objects and move them to memcached and pull them back, which was sometimes more expensive than keeping them, you know, in, in, in the local hash map or just uh, getting them well, from that, the that, map. That's why at the time I, when I built out their, their caching structure, when I was, and this is all for performance of scaling their system, um, they were already using local caches. And those, like I said, they were just uh, basically LRUs. Um, and uh, we made memcached as a remote layer, so it's second level cache. Okay. And then in that way, you didn't hit the serialization penalty as much. Um, and then we were using JMS as a, um, you know, that's what all of our RPCs and everything else is on. So that would send a broadcast to do a cache invalidation okay. um, as needed. And then we would do a bunch of pre-warming um, as, as well, just to try to pre-warm memcached or pre-warm the local caches to avoid um, to avoid a lot of um, unnecessary hits. Um, so so you, you use never memcached directly, you use memcached more or less like a almost database, second level cache, which... Uh which was the second, yeah, it was like the persistence almost of your cache, right? Exactly. So, I mean, I mean so still, you still used it, but we didn't use an application code. It was, and you, you made Caffeine the Project, code. the Caffeine Project from the beginning, right? Uh, so at that time I was working, so I did, so when I was working on that, I was, um, I also had to do other stuff with like, yeah, our front end was all um, kind of JSP kind of template type stuff. So we use a lot of expression, um, EL expressions. Uh -huh. And so that was hitting um, for every UI render threads, we would hit these locks on the server trying to hit the cache. Uh -huh. So I was trying to fix those performance bottlenecks. So um, at the time, you didn't really have good concurrent caches. So um, I was interested in concurrency because Java 5 was still pretty fresh. 
And, um, and so I was trying to figure out how you build a concurrent linked hash map. So linked hash map you, is a uh, data structure in Java, which can be uh, set to become an LRU. And then evicted, I wanted to figure out how would you do the same thing in a concurrent fashion? And that turned out to be a very hard problem, which is why Java never built one. And then I, and so then I figured, I eventually figured out that that's open source. That's, that's a library called concurrent link hash map that got used by a bunch of people back in the day, um, like Cassandra and others. And then, um, and then, so I, and then I, that's when I was right when I was uh, figuring out the algorithms there, I went over to Google at Google. Um, I worked with. Uh, Kevin and others to um, to build Guapa's cache, and so oh. I was kind of taking the bits of algorithms that I figured out from the current kernel hash map. Taking um, they had already built uh, MapMaker and some other type of stuff, which was um, a predecessor to, to Guapa's cache that um, that didn't really have the greatest algorithms, but it, it it had certain its own ideas that were sometimes good, and it forked in current hash map. And so trying to figure out how I could bring my ideas into their existing. Uh, uh, data structures, which kind of corrupted uh, my my algorithms because you know we just had different opinions of how things should work. But um, so we built out that out more of a um, consumer oriented kind of trying to get something so that Google had a good caching library, not a lot of these um, bespoke ones. And then um, after a couple of years, uh, uh, Java eight came out. Um, I didn't feel like I'd be stepping on toes to uh, rewrite Guava's cache the way I always had said I sh it should be, but I was <laughs> nuclear. So they weren't going to listen to a nuclear. They were going to listen to the other guys. So, um, so I figured I wouldn't be stepping on toes. Uh, Java 8 was fresh. Uh, everyone who had worked on it basically no longer worked on, on Guava's cache. So I figured, um, so something like, uh, 2014, 2015, um, when it was just a, um, just the holidays, it was just Christmas break. And, you know, I figured, you know, this would be fun. Java 8 is new. I want to learn Java 8. So let me go write cache. So okay. I started, um, as I just started writing caffeine and, um, and I was getting, you know, it just, it worked. And back then EH cache was not good enough. So uh, you, you, are you aware of EH cache? I'd use EH cache, uh, my first job. That's what we'd use as caching okay. at the time, but EH cache was still, um, at the time it was EH cache one, which was still a big synchronized LRU. That's all. Oh, okay. So it this is what they knew about that. With its own disk cache and other really great fancy things. It was, it's, it was well designed, but again, it, there was no real concurrency. Okay. Because your the concurrency was the assumption that um, your it had only concurrency to say that um, it would when you when you have self-populating cache that would um, that would take an, a different lock so that when you were loading an entry mm -hmm. you didn't have you know your cache stampede where another another thread coming for that same key would mm -hmm. also load at the same time and therefore you're doing wasted work mm -hmm. but you don't want that loading to then block any other cache hit because mm -hmm. it's taking out some global lock so uh, eh cache had a self-populating uh, cache, but uh, when you were using it in a, you know, in memory, like the UI level, where it was server-side pages that were constantly getting hit to do these EL expressions from in some EL cache, that that hash map level lock was still too much. And so that's why I was trying to figure out how would you write a proper concurrent data structure. Okay. Um, and that's when I wrote my concurrent linked hash map. And then from there, you know, just kept going. I didn't use EH cache so. uh, beyond that. I know that they made improvements, but I didn't. Um, it was no longer uh, needed on my work. The Java eight uh, concurrent hash map. So my understanding is how it works is if you if you access the concurrent hash map f from uh, multiple threads, it works like um, each thread gets a small region, like almost like a sharding inside the concurrent hash map. Is it correct point of view how this works? So the Java five version um, is basically uh, many small hash tables based mm -hmm. on the currency level. 
Yeah. Um, and so then, and then, uh, then it, it's a fixed set of hash tables and uh, reads, of course, are lock free. Um, and writes take out a segment lock and then they're exclusive. And um, that works pretty well. It just doesn't scale to very high number of cores. So um, you start running because because out. the region becomes too small, right? So if you have higher a number of cores, the region becomes smaller and smaller, and this is why it doesn't scale. Be yeah, the, the 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 fact is that you um, your entries will more likely um, when you know challenges like you know if you have lots of lots of writes, your um, your entries will likely hit some of the same segments. Oh, of so, course, and, the the, the so amount of segments was fixed, right? Exactly. Okay, so this is what I misunderstood. I thought the, the, the amount of segments is the same as the amount of CPU. No. Basically, you'd set you'd set it by concurrency level. So mm -hmm. the default I think was like uh, eight or sixty four or something. Okay. And um, and so that was the old Java five one, which was a very well well designed. It just um, for high writes, it just didn't scale as much because um, it wouldn't it wouldn't scale at at usage. It would scale at construction. And uh, construction, it just still, you still, it would be large segments no matter what. So you'd still have a good chance of collisions. And in Java 8, uh, so, uh, excuse me. So I was actually wrong. So the segments were not too small, they were too big. Because if you yeah. have 64 segments and you have a huge hash map, so there are lots of entries per segment. And if you have uh, exactly. lots of CPUs, the chances are very high that you get contention inside a segment, right? This exactly. is the problem. Exactly. And so in Java 8, it's been rewritten from scratch. Uh, to use um, such that you have, a, um, instead of segments, they call them hash bins, but kind of the same idea. And but effectively, you, the um, it tries to have very many many small hash bins. So you'll have a table with might have hundreds of these little hash bins, and those each hash bin is of course the the you know the linked list chain uh, for the um, for the closed addressing. And so uh, this way, um, and it scales with the capacity. So if you have a very large uh, concurrent hash map, you'll have more um, bins and mm -hmm. therefore more potential write concurrency. Mm -hmm. And it was a re it was important for them to do this because uh, um, Java 8 also introduced the computation methods mm -hmm. to compute and compute, merge, so forth. And um, and so they lock on the hash bin. So you know, and you though you want multiple computes to be able to happen in parallel, and you fix the number of um, of locks up front, then of course, if you only have like eight eight bins, you know, you're, you're it's going to be problematic. And Java, that's where Java, um, or sorry, that's where Guava forked uh, Java 5's hash map for Cache Builder in order to um, in order to allow it to do more of that self-population of a loading cache without taking out the segment level lock. But you know, you're now dealing at the low levels of a hash table, and you know, and so it had a lot of complexity um, because of that. And Java 8, of course, it's it's built-in feature. And is designed for scale, and it also um, handles um, hash toss attacks. Okay. So, um, so you know, if you if you have lots of hash collisions, um, you want to degrade to in their example, they degrade to a red black tree. So it handles more things, much more versatile. Um, and so yeah, that's how Java H one works. Okay. And 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 how is your implementation even better than Java H one? Right, because you created something so, even better than the Java eight version. So, so I built on top of Java 8. So um, in my original kernel link hash map, um, I decorated the underlying hash table. Okay. In Guava, they had already forked it to in order to add their own ability to do loading uh, to load entries and not take out the segment level lock during the load um, and other features like uh, like soft references. And um, and that added a huge amount of complexity um, and, and limitations. And so in caffeine, I went right back to, again, the way I preferred, which was decoration, because I knew that the hash tables would evolve as they had in Java 5 to Java 8. And I didn't want to, um, 
I just didn't, I know, I just didn't see there being a need. There's enough complexity of the cache to not need, to not also uh, embedded with the, um, uh, with the actual hash table. So, 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 um, so what you are doing with the caffeine, you are wrapping the concurrent hash map and you're adding, uh, I would, cache specific features around uh, concurrent yes. hash map, but you are yeah. not more concurrent than the current implementation of Java 8. You, you are just as concurrent exactly. as Java 8, but you're adding uh, cache specific features on top of concurrent hash map, right? Exactly. And whenever, and, and you can never be faster than your baseline. So yeah. in that sense, like the caching will be more expensive because uh, the, what makes hard, caching interesting and hard uh, from currency perspective is uh, an LRU is a least recently used item. So that means that every single time you access the item, you're updating its state to say, oh, this is now the least recently used one. So that um, if you want to to traditionally like link hash map, that's maintained on the doubly linked list. Do you, you you look up the key, you find an entry, that entry embeds the, the previous index pointers. So you can just unlink it and then push it to the tail and, and you know link it back as, as um, the least recently used. And the problem is that with concurrency, well, every read is a write. Every single time yeah. you're reading the entry, you're modifying internal shared state. And yeah. well, that internal shared state is not only just the two pointers, it's also the tail where everything is being moved to, so you're having contention there. So um, so that that was a hard challenge of trying to figure out how would you make a current LRU that maintains that property um, when every every read is a write. And so, um, so but, that means that but, uh, reading from, from your cache means it doesn't have to be strict because some read writes can get lost i don't care the last has to win right so if i'm reading you know and i'm reading concurrently i'm reading first time and at the same time i'm reading the second time so the first read can get lost because no one cares i i only have to know that uh, i yeah. read yep. right yep exactly so the the the, the cache policy can be lossy but yeah. the but from the data consistency has to be strict so yeah. the user should always so the hash table is always the, the latest version and you always should get the consistent data yeah. but the the policy if of what it it, it means it has to have uh, the data structures have to be correct they can't be they can't be corrupted but they don't have to make they don't have to be strictly every little detail because you don't have concurrency which means non-terminism as you're saying so you can be somewhat lossy if you have if you have too many reads you would prefer uh ha having better um throughput then it would be about having it strictly if every little read is is, is taken into account and okay. so um the, the trick that the trick that i use in my caches has been to use uh ring buffers so you basically, um, instead of uh, um, instead of basically applying the work immediately, you put the work into you publish the work to a ring buffer, and that's cheap. There's no allocation, and then and then when the buffer gets full, was a subscription is a policy, so it gets it gets uh, replayed, and you just take out a try lock. To say, okay, well, when the buffer is full, take out a try lock. If I acquire the lock, wonderful, I can replay all the work that's been buffered, and if not, I don't care. Someone else is doing the work, and so you can take that style of publishing um, and then replaying. And then if the buffer is full for a read, you don't care. It's like, well, I can't handle that that throughput. And like you said, you know, the maintaining strict LRU isn't the most important important thing. I'd rather hand back the value uh, as quick as possible. So you just drop that read. You could um, even have one buffer per item, right? It would um, it would take more memory. I do it basically per thread. So okay, I basically okay. I, I do dynamically. I use uh, in Java Java eight also introduced uh, uh, dyna uh, dynamic concurrent counters like okay. long adder yeah. and so behind the scenes that uses a data structure called stripe 64 
and since the dynamically growing uh, data structure, so as more concurrency happen, add more contention, it'll add more cells, mm -hmm. and therefore we'll just stripe it across the number of CPUs. And so I take uh, Doug's Doug's work and I adapt it over to these ring buffers to dynamically grow. So it starts off with zero. Do you have any allocated? You just created the cache. Um, there's no, you don't allocate upfront. Mm -hmm. And then as you're adding more and more threads, it will dynamically take up, um, you know, expand how much it needs to be able to meet your requirements. Mm -hmm. Crazy what you're doing, actually, in your leisure, right? Almost. Yeah, that was basically, um, at first it was just, you know, it was just um, fun to do after work uh, on the old projects. Then it was, uh, you know, did, like I said, I started off just in um, over the holiday break. And then um, and then my, my current job back before the pandemic, um, I had about an hour plus commute on train. So that's when I'd work on it. I'd just be on the train and just, just work on it. And I was just, um, you know, it was, it was nice to do a real like computer science style projects um, while you're uh, off at, you know, work doing, you know, you know, meetings and other type of things that are a little bit less fun. So um, that was kind of my distraction. <laughs> meetings are less fun. So we are very similar, I would say. Yeah. <laughs> and um... so I'm, I'm stuck in meetings all day. So uh, that's, that's kind of my escape. Okay. And uh, which features uh, Caffeine comes with? So, um, I mean, if I will use Caffeine, is it like Maven dependency or what is it exactly? So how I can use it? Um, so the, the idea with all, all the caches I built and and uh, and Guava as well um, was always trying to be an extension to the Java collection framework. Mm -hmm. So don't reinvent the world. Don't yeah. make up new, new versions of futures or other concepts. Basically take the Java collection, which is really well done, and just extend it to do what would you know, take Josh Blosh, who reviewed our API for, for Guava's cache, well, how would he maybe design um, a cache if he was going to go build one? And um, and try and feel natural in that ecosystem. So um, so in that sense, um, unlike things like EHCache and others, which feel like framework, you have XML, you have manager, yeah. you have that type of stuff. Um, uh, all of the ones I built feel just like any hash map. You okay. move it up, you do it, you configure it however you want to configure it. Like, I don't care if you're using YAML, JSON, INI, whatever you config, that's your choice. It's just a data structure. It's just like bringing in a, um, another random data structure you might like that could be a radix tree or whatever it is. It's a data structure. Okay. So, um, so it's just a maven dependency. Um, you bring it in, you you, you use a, the guava style builder API, um, and then, um, and then you decide, you know, it's like it's like any other hash map. So you decide that lifecycle, its configuration, how it gets used, and um, and we just try to expose a, um, you know, caching a more cache specific API that kind of leans you in the right direction, yeah. and then has an eyes map, uh, you know, basically escape hatch and say, oh, you know what? There's things about a map that I want to do. Maybe I want to iterate all the keys, do things that make sense that aren't, you know, what you normally should do. Ideally, you aren't looking at all the entries in a cache because it's supposed to be. Um, you know, data can come and go at any time, but if you need, if you want the map, you yeah, sure you can use you can use it as a map, um, and, and do or do other exploration features or whatever. Um, so we have those hooks, um, but you know, and yet it's it's a it's just a fancy concurrent hash map. So it has a, um, you know, it has its eviction policy. Um, so you know, I was more interested in the concurrency side, but after I kind of had that figured out, I, I started exploring the eviction side. So working with some guys, um, um, for, um some researchers in, in Israel, they come up with a really elegant scheme uh, called Tiny LFU. Okay. And so then working on their scheme and um, and using more data sets and kind of understanding it better, uh, was able to advance it further. So we came up with improvements towards that to uh, make it adaptive. So some workloads are frequency, some workloads are recency bias, some workloads are a mixer, and we'd adaptively tune based on a workload. 
um, other oh, tricks like that. So this is crazy what you're doing. There's some usability stuff as well. So you have like, you know, almost ergonomics, you know, like the garbage collectors or your yeah, cash. Yeah, it's dynamic. It's behind the scenes. You, you throw a workload at it and we'll figure out how to optimize. That is and crazy. We'll so which policies yeah. do you support? So you have last recently used, which, what else? Uh, it's all, it's, it's internal. So you don't actually, um, we always, we keep the, um, the users ideally shouldn't have to go tune those type of things. You should have to say, are you, I want LRU or LFU. You should say what feature you want. You want expiration on, on, on this type of, you know, after write or, or on create or something. You want okay. a maximum size. You want, you, you describe kind of like SQL. In SQL, okay. you don't say, uh, this is going to be a B tree and this is how you want you do it. Okay. Or like, what, you can sub what you can describe? So you describe, you describe things like maximum size. Um, you describe you have a cache loader to say you know, on a cache on a key, when a when a when a miss occurs. Here's how you load the entry. Okay. Here's if um, you can describe the um, refresh policies. It says if an entry has been um, is accessed after this duration, I want you to instantly reload it. Uh -huh. um, have support for all the completable future goodness. So you have asynchronous asynchronous cache so things aren't blocking. Um, Removal listener, um, you know, ah, uh, I'm, okay. I'm, a huge fan of, I'm not a huge fan of soft and weak references, but um, that's part of Guava because the original um, author of Bob Lee, he was a huge fan of, of soft references. He thought that was an uh, answer to everything. Um, <laughs> turned out to be wrong, but I can understand why he thought that way at the time. So I supported it. It just, it didn't make everything designed around it. Uh, like, you know, which is what kind of limits Guava's performance. Um, so a lot, lots of pretty much every feature you might need, or at least flexibility to let people build on top. And then the internals uh, do things like we use um, account min sketch to maintain a, a frequency histogram, uh, a timer wheel to, uh, to to support variable expiration. So both of those are O1 data structures. So you know you don't have to maintain a prior, you know login priority queues, which will degrade your performance. Um, you know we do spend a lot. We use um, hill climbing to dynamically. Um, monitor the, the hit rates and then try to tune based upon uh you know try to tune our internals trying to figure out what how to maximize your hit rate mm -hmm. um just you know it's just a lot of data structure algorithm finding on the inside and just you know the core uh you know you know usability apis on the outside okay so so, so what soft reference means is uh, that uh, it is go going to be garbage collected basically if, if you, the jvm is running out of memory they, they can be collected right yeah, the, and it's collected in a globally uh, LRU fashion. And the problem with it is that you're effectively putting a lot of weight, uh, a lot of penalty cost yeah. on the garbage okay. software because okay. we will mostly only do it traditionally during a full GC, not during a, a and so what happens is that you, and it seems it says, okay, well you keep it around until I'm out of memory, which means that your entire heap. So let's say you only have one gigabyte of live objects and you have a maybe a two gig heap or whatever, it will fill up all the remaining space with these dead objects that are available that could be resurrected. Um, and so, and then that means that you're constantly hitting a point of needing a full GC. Because if, if the garbage collector only collects top references traditionally at a full GC, that means you're doing a stop the world. So yeah. you're basically forcing the garbage collector to do that and the garbage collector stop the world, stop everything, yeah, this whole point, and then it does its work. So you're forcing it to go into this uh, GC thrashing mode of, uh, you know, I fill up the heap with all of this extra cache data then I stop the world, I clean it, not really understanding which things other than global LRU, I don't know how valuable things are. And, yeah. then, and, then, I, and then I clean, and then garbage collector will only clean up the amount it thought it needed to unstop. And then very quickly, again, you stop the world again because you filled it up. 
but just you know activity. So you'd be hitting this GC thrashing, and your form is to degrade um, because you put the penalty on the GC. But as a last option, this could be interesting, right? Not like uh, as a, as a strategy, but I say, okay, I have my options. But if it fills up, then I could use uh, soft references. But what I understood is there's still uh, lots of overhead involved, right? So there's uh, the, the penalty you're, is rather you're, high. You're basically making the overhead soft references look attractive because from a programming model, you you since you aren't maintaining any locks or any other concurrency, it's a it's a JVM. You it looks like it's very cheap because you can write a little micro benchmark. And you can pound it with threads, and it's exactly the same cost as an unbounded current hash map. And behind the scenes, it just removes the entries when they're expired, and you're you're done. Uh, the problem is, is that you, while you're on your application side, it feels very fast, and that micro benchmark in the system performance has dropped uh, to be abysmal because you basically push all of the cost on the garbage collector, and okay. you're and you're telling the garbage collector to go and to stop the worlds continuously because it will it will only it won't collect everything. Because you said, hey, any extra free, free memory, leave that open for my soft references. So it only collect enough to to continue working. And then it would immediately run out, exhaust its memory again, and then hit that. And then you constantly be hitting yeah. the world positive. But, but what you could do is you could use your policies and now, and yes. the soft reference as a second strategy callback. Yep. Call yep, so all that stuff works. So that can all definitely work. And if that's what people want to do, they can use that. It just... Um, it just turned out to be better most of the time. To that is what I was looking at because if you if you test your system right, I think your eviction policy should be enough. But uh, so in theory, I could just use you know, the soft reference as a fallback, and the and yep. the performance should should degrade because uh, and in 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 most cases it the 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 entry should be collected by your by your strategies or policies, and in worst case, it's going to be the stop the world collection. Right, this would work. Exactly. You shouldn't rely exclusively on the soft references. Exactly. This, this is what I don't exactly. get because uh, exactly. that, was, that was a learning. That was what uh, Google's Java team originally very much heavily proposed back in the Java five uh, days, and then everyone learned why that wasn't a good idea. And then, and then, luckily, we had figured out how to do a concurrent LRUs and the like, and so we could make that no, no longer primary. So that's there. You can definitely add it as an option, um, but um, I, it's just not one that I personally use very often because yeah. uh, most of the time you need to give Java enough memory anyway, so you aren't super constrained. Mm -hmm. So you don't usually have to rely on that. But it's good to have as a as a fallback um, for those cases like IoT where you might need it. And your caffeine project, do do you, do you emit any metrics or monitoring stuff, which is interesting? So can I just yeah? Them? So there, there's stats um, that you can you and then there's a bunch of adapters from um, from different you know micrometer, uh, drop wizard, Prometheus, a bunch of others. Um, mm -hmm. They provide their own adapters to capture those uh, those metrics, um, and, and yeah. we and we just publish the the basic stats. So now, it was a vacation project. Then you spend a few hours in in train hacking on it, yeah. and then you got you know a team from Israel. Uh, and and you have adapters for micrometer. So how this happened? I mean, this is just crazy, you know. So in a in, in a shortest amount of time, you created something interesting, and and you are working together with researchers. So so how you got the attention, or what was it? Um. Well, I mean, so I mean, I would say, I, I spent I I started in two thousand eight back when I was just doing it for 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 fun, you know, to learn how to do concurrency. Okay. And so, I mean, and then it wasn't until 2014 or whenever I started Caffeine. So there was a good chunk of time where I'd done this stuff with, with other people. Oh, okay. know, I learned when I was at Google, I, you know, we had worked with, I'd worked with the Guava guys who were great and we figured out how to do the Guava's cache. So it wasn't as if I just woke up one day and I just started from scratch not knowing anything. Mm -hmm. um, and I, um, but I built, um, but the, the, the research guys have been really wonderful because, um, you know, they read, 
they they published a conference paper on their ideas um, and I just emailed them and that's all it took. And I just emailed them and um, asked them about their stuff. Uh, they helped me building up a little prototype in the simulator. So I'd really catch them later so I could try all these different eviction policies. And I tried some of them in the past, but um, I'd always kind of been, you know, papers kind of tend to lie. If you read research papers, they always tell you the best things and not the reality. So I really, um, I wrote a simulator so I could try out all different policies and see how they, you know, what actually uh, worked and how well. And um, and so they, the researchers, uh, they'd really nice. They'd helped um, just fix up my version of their tiny all few algorithm. And then I found problems as everyone would expect, where it did integrated in certain cases. And then uh, brainstorming um, with them, um, I, I kind of figured out um, solutions, um, just looking at different workloads and stuff. And so. Um, and so then, you know, we, uh, you know, we would refine those together. Uh, they published um, two papers that I'm, I'm, they were nice enough to throw my, me as a co-author on. And, um, you know, they do the research angle. But it was just, you know, you just send emails. It's just like anything else. I'm talking to a guy uh, who's working on a cache for CockroachDB, which is in Go. Yeah. And, um, and and we're just sending over emails and we're picking out algorithms because he's using, um, using an algorithm called CockPro. Clock, clock and we're finding degradations and we're coming up with with ideas of how to improve it. And I don't even think he works for CockroachDB. I think he just, he uses it at work and he thought it would be fun. So he wanted to rewrite their cat. <laughs> yeah. And then, um, then and then one of their guys had tagged me and then, you know, and then I'm just talking to this guy and I think in Korea and we're just sending emails and coming up with ideas and he's writing the simulator code and we're finding ways to improve that algorithm to be competitive with caffeine, but it's a go project. Um, and when he ports it over back to go, um, you know, so it's just, it just, you know, a lot of people are very friendly. A lot of people want yeah. to talk text and you send an email and, you know, and, you know, you don't have any expectations and you just send emails, you send back and forth, you learn from each other and that, that's it. Yeah. CockroachDB, by the way, is a crazy project. It's, it's a really nice one, right? It's uh, incredible what they are doing. Um, are you aware also of MapDB project? MapDB, you heard about that? Uh, MapDB. Oh yeah, MapDB. I think I talked to the author a long time ago. Um, I forget his name off the top of my head, but yeah, he was a great guy. Um, I know that that was like a persistent. Yeah. Uh, he was trying to because you you, you said you know who's the maker, and he's um he has almost the same API to create a persistent hash map. You know, so it's like uh DB from whatever, and then you create the map back, and if you interact with the map, you get you know persistence hash map, which remind me of caffeine. By the way, you know how I found caffeine? Oh yeah. You know why? How? No. How do you find it? <laughs> so um, I, I use a lot of Jakarta microprofile, and uh, there there's a nice project called Quarkus. Oh yes, of course. Yeah, and then I use you know the uh, then I take a look at the cache annotations, and I was uh, I was pretty convinced that they will use Infinispan because Quarkus is uh, is uh, Red Hat, mm -hmm. and I was pretty sure it's Infinispan, but it wasn't. And I asked them, you know, what are you using? And they say caffeine. So. What, what what is caffeine? Caffeine? I never heard about that. So a nice cash. We use caffeine. It's really nice. And I and I took a look and then I found you. It's a crazy caffeine. How? And well, then I dropped you a mail and you say, of course yeah. we can talk immediately. I said, okay, yeah. nice. Where are you from? It's like, yeah, okay, you're from USA. Okay, this can be challenging <laughs> with the time zone. And now we are yeah. talking. And uh, and even crazier. So if you have your stack with Rest Easy Juice, you have almost Quarkus. I don't know whether you are aware yep. of it. If, if you yeah, will, no, I don't. If you use Quarkus, actually, what, what could happen is that Quarkus will consume less memory than your combination of Jetty, JaxRS, Juice. This is what you should investigate, because what I did in my projects is um, I compared Quarkus uh, apps to empty Jetty or Tomcat, and Quarkus was smaller.
Yep, I, I think, um, yeah, and the, the, the Quarkus guys um, are pretty great. And, um, and the Infinity Span, they used to use their own cache, but you know, they didn't, they switched over to caffeine because they had bugs and why maintain it if someone else will do the work for you? Yeah. So the Infinity Span is now on top of caffeine. It's for its local cache as well. Oh, um, I didn't but, do that. So, so Infinity Span uses caffeine? Yeah, they switched over. They, uh, they, they, they had their own, they tried rewriting it. They had a lot of bugs. Uh, um, I, I showed them that their benchmark was wrong, and in fact, they actually decreased performance, not increased it, because they wrote, they, it's very hard to write a good benchmark, uh, right? And so they accidentally wrote the benchmark wrong, and it gave them the wrong metrics. And I was like, you know, I was like, here you guys go, just so you know. And I got this project, and they were like, you know, why are we wasting our time? Let's just use this. Yeah. So um, they were nice, and they switched over a couple years back. And then, um, and I guess that's how Quarkus uh, got aware. And um, I looked at Quarkus. It looks neat. I, I kind of... I guess back in I guess you probably remember back in the day when you have to just fight with so many different frameworks. Yeah. I I got very much in the mentality of um, use if you have to use a framework, use a framework as like 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 a library. Yeah. I don't want to live live in an ecosystem where I'm dependent on on someone else who never thought about my use case mm -hmm. and therefore don't doesn't give me the flexibility to solve my problems. Okay. And I need to get them to do a change and I have to wait for their releases. If I use it like a library, then I have all the flexibility I need. I can always adapt it. I can always patch because I'm wrapping their work around mine yeah. um, in mind. So, um, so when I like, so that's why I didn't use a, a, a pre-made stack for like this web server, all of that type of stuff. I just wired it up together uh, for reduce and rest easy. It's not that hard to do. And therefore, as I needed more features, as I needed to de deal with bugs, I could deal with it, and I could also upstream any fixes or issues um, that I found. Um, and I think work is a lot better, but um, I'm sure a lot of us have suffered at some job where we've had the framework help. And um, and so not knowing enough um, about the Quarkus angle towards things, I do like the ability to say, in the end of the day, I need to get my job done. I don't care if I'm in Eclipse, I'm in visual code. Like if my ID isn't working, I'm just gonna go right back to text editor. I'm just, I want, I'm gonna go back to command line to go build. If I can't build my ID, I wanna get things done. And um, it used to be in the old days, you'd, um, you suffered. When you couldn't do that, and so uh, I definitely think work is probably the future. But um, that's probably my only real uh, bias against uh, using a pre-made stack. Um, but and other than that, I think um, you know the stuff that they've been doing, that Micronaut and that others have been doing in this space, have been really excellent. And um, so you know, I, I'm sure I enjoy working with them if if I have, if I have the opportunity. Um, I'm almost similar opinion to yours. The 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 uh, the, the uh, difference is I'm I'm working. Uh, as a consultant and I see more mm -hmm. project at the same time. And what I really enjoy is the fact that uh, sometimes like, for instance, MicroProfile or similar project called Helidon or Open Liberty, Tomcat, mm -hmm. uh, Tommy, Whitefly, they all commit to use the MicroProfile. Mm -hmm. So I get exactly the same APIs. I don't care actually about the implementation. So, you know, I could just pick Quarkus and do my project. And if my client is not happy, it's okay, then don't talk to Red Hat. Now come to Oracle. I can, we can use Helidon. And you have exactly the same experience. So I'm almost, and actually, we have the same reasons to behave differently. Yeah. So you like, you know, to, to, to patch uh, the library in worst case. What I would do, I would switch the environment. If I get some problem with Quarkus, I don't say I would try Helidon. If Helidon doesn't work, I have five runtimes where I can you know, pick and choose. And, and, also, my projects are not that demanding or crazy. They are less boring. So it's absolutely okay to get with 80%. You know, I don't have to tweak the rest easy or, or no, the jersey, the last bits. I'm just happy if it works everything together. And well, usually... Do you, make, 
Do you yeah. own the project long term, or do you own the project only for a short term during your consultation? I'm I'm a short term, but my clients want support from me longer term. So some clients I see every five years. So what I suggest them should work in a few years. Uh, but uh, they were happy with the strategy so far, and our strategy was rely on the API and not on the mm -hmm. runtime. So actually opposite to your strategy, but it worked well. And and for instance, um, in my project, I would do code review, and I will find a dependency on Jersey where defect, because in the past we burn on that. You know, there was a at the beginning it was Comsan Jersey, then it was or Glassfish Jersey, mm -hmm. and I just yep. would like to have Java X RS, and I don't care what's behind, for instance, right? And um, so this is a little bit different. And also, if you do it from scratch, you can optimize more, but you need more time. With my strategy, yeah. I can go, you know, to a, and I get also fresh developers. Like, look, Quarkus is well document, start with it, and just it, implement the first use case, and they don't need my expertise. They can just, you know, create the first CRUD uh, stuff. If we would start with a perfect environment, as in your startup, you will at least spend two days, you know, or three days with the initial setup, I will have mm -hmm. the, the next problem is politics. If I come in and say, okay, use REST easy, they will ask me, why not Jersey? If I pick Jersey, why not Apache CXF or whatever? So whatever you do is wrong. But if you say, yeah. this is the API, just pick it and, and, and choose whatever runtime you like. So this was, this was my no politics strategy, you know. I think that's good. I think the difference is, while I do very much believe like use API, like like if if I'm just saying use Jax RS, I don't they don't most people have to care that we're using REST easy, not Jersey. Yeah. Uh, or and 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 I agree that in your world you can switch mostly because you're going to a different company, different uh, role, yeah. or yeah. if there's something else. But in your working it day to day, you know, two or three days isn't that big of a commitment to spend just to set up. Yeah, you're right. And then, and then after that, you run into production issues. Like I had, I had to escalate a um, a hash denial service attack uh, to Red Hat because mm -hmm. you know basically brought uh, it was hurting our production. We were actually dosting ourselves because you know we just changed a route and we ran into this uh, this problem. Mm -hmm. And you know, so okay, I now need to go uh, safeguard my system, go through their security uh, process, get that stuff escalated, get, show them examples, all that type of stuff. And if I'm using an opaque framework, which yes, I'm using, if it's using standard APIs, that's wonderful. But if it's opaque where I can't get into the guts, then I can't go off and try to patch and get myself working while I'm waiting to get the bug fixed upstream. And, and so there's a lot of those that happen in day to day real world and, um, of a, of a, of a long-term job. So, um, you, I very much agree. You want to use standard APIs as much as possible. Don't get into the gory details. But so, uh, but back when you used to have opaque opinionated frameworks that were really not letting you get into those details of things, and nowadays modern Java is a lot better. It's more library oriented, not yep. you know, this massive framework. Then um, being able to say, I need to get my job done. I need to make this work. I can't wait two or three months for um, trying to convince some developer maybe to make their patches. Let me make sure my stuff will work. Let me upstream what I can. Let me work around their issues, and and then and then try to and I'll try to, to remove whatever workarounds I have uh, when the official system is ready. Yeah. Um, and that and that's something easier to do when you're taking the more library oriented. Uh, but like you like you you know like I said, nowadays modern job is a lot better than it yeah. used to be. Back in the early 2000s, it was pretty it was pretty awful in that respect. Uh, 
the problem is also no politics in in, in my project sometimes uh, companies would like yeah. to have support commercial support so we need both yeah. if there is something problematic we have to patch it and then wait until the vendor you know accept the patches or patches for us and they get the official release because if you just fix the problem on on your side you created basically a fork so uh if they release a, a new, new so this but I really enjoyed, you know, your perspective. But at the same time, it doesn't have to be a fork. I almost never have to fork a project to fix a bug because if the project is more like a library, I can kind of wrap those and, and to tweak those internals without forking it. Because oftentimes there's a little bit where there's a hook somewhere that I can still get into it. I don't, so only very rarely do I fork a project and be suffer that and I try to get rid of that as soon as possible. Yeah, you should, you should, if you, if you are able, you know, to contribute the patches, you it works, exactly. but the problem is, you know, and with my clients, the larger companies, they not always run the recent version of the of the uh, yep. of the version, and then it's really hard to convince the open source developers to patch an old stuff, and or you know, this is a little bit. But I really enjoyed your point of view. So now, yeah. where people can find you and your caffeine, you know, do you have uh, and an, an some pointers to your Twitter account, to caffeine or whatever? Uh, you just search on GitHub. It's a uh... Um, you just do a Google search for uh, caffeine cash, mm -hmm. um, and you'll find my GitHub, and it'll just be under uh, GitHub um, slash Ben dash Maness uh, slash caffeine. Mm -hmm. But you know, honestly, Google is a lot easier than anything else. Um, and then there's a wiki uh, that you know is based off Google's uh, user guide um, that's been updated that has all this all the details on it. Um, other than that, you can you know open up issues. Uh, you can post on Stack Overflow, you can email me um, any questions, I'm happy to help them. Like I said, like a lot of times, like you said, I was talking, it was just send people sending emails and you have interesting conversations and um, that's what makes the job uh, job fun. Yeah, it was really fun. It was a talk, talk with you, know, so just in the out of a blue, I sent you an email and now we are talking. So yeah. a be beautiful Java world, I would say, right? Yeah, thanks a lot. Yeah, thank you a lot.